Good morning, everybody. Again, thank you for being with us. And uh, when I talked about the LYG, the youth group, going to camp and signing up, today's not the deadline for that. It's t-shirts. So, all right, I got that wrong. But anyway, just to let you know, there's still more time to get into camp for all of you. So, the question that I had written on my page here in my outline was something I didn't know what was going to happen this week. The question I had written was, has, have many, how many of you have noticed the polarization in our society today? And it's evident by what has happened in the last couple of days that it is very polarized in our society. And as we've seen in our culture, our differences are often escalated, they're often increased, and they're often worsened to a point to where there is true hatred for those who hold an opposing view, whether, whether it's political, whether it's racial, whether it's gender, whether it's school choice, and we could just add many, many more categories if we wanted to. If you don't see it my way, you're not accepted in my camp. Now, think about this. We all, every single one of us, carry a set of values. We carry a set of principles, a standard of being, which we have been taught, which has, the reason we have that is because we've been taught. It's something we have caught. It's something we have bought into over time. Those values are the way we see the world, each and every one of us, and it is our truth. It's our truth, and everybody has that truth. And even in churches across this nation, churches struggle to be unified. And the answer is why? Why? Why is that? Well, I believe it's we fail to listen to the Word of God and to love our neighbor. And to love our neighbor as ourself. And so, as a body of believers, we have, as we have placed our faith in the hope and name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We have made a commitment, a commitment to such. We were baptized into Christ so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too were raised to a new life. We therefore have died to our old self, died to our old self, and become a new creation, committing ourselves to the way, the way of Jesus. That's what we're about. It's who we are. It's what we're supposed to be. In a recent study by LifeWay, the percentage of evangelicals in the U.S. who say they use the following every day. So listen to this. 66% of believers say they use Facebook at least once a day, and 49% of those say that they use it multiple times a day. 39% of believers watch a YouTube video at least once a day, and among Christians who assert the Bible as their highest authority, only a third, only a third say they spend time reading the Bible every single day. 32% our values and principles are taught, they're caught, and they're bought by those avenues to which we give our most attention. But what we give our most attention, studies by research firms continually demonstrate that Bible reading and study have more impact, more impact on our spiritual health and maturity than any other factor out there. And since congregants 
are spending so little time in the Scriptures. Most churches in America are unhealthy, and they're divided. They're unhealthy and divided. When Christians are gorging on social media fast food and skipping feasts in the Word of God, there's bound to be conflict, and there's bound to be differences as well. Where church people ought to be the most unified group of faith, the most unified group on the face of the earth, we're often polarized. And what do you think the most polarizing, the most polarizing area is amongst churches? Politics? Sure. Okay, this came out on Friday. It's by Greg Wallace, and he says, are we destroying the church to save it? He says this, in the so-called culture war in America, it, happen, it appears that some of us Christians are oblivious to the fact that in our, in our attempts to save the church, we are destroying it. In many of our minds, the church is threatened by wokeness, attacks on religious liberty, and racial Marxism. But the greater threat is the ways in which many of us respond to these issues. Jesus, the head of the church, said, A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my dis disciples if you love one another. Yet as many of us respond to these threats, we are not loving one another. We are demonizing one another, hating one another, fighting with one another. And no wonder fewer Americans claim to actually belong to a church. Bill Haslam, the former Republican governor of Tennessee, notes, Christians are acting just like everyone else. We're just as likely to send a nasty message on the Internet. We're just as likely to think we've won a battle because we have the most clever rhetoric on Twitter. Our crusades against the radical left and sadly against fellow Christians who do not, do not believe as we do and our focus on the ends as far as defeating the enemy and not the means loving our enemy have driven people away from the church. And can I let you in on a little secret? And I know this to be true. Not everyone here at Lake Home is a Republican. I just wanted to let you in on that secret. And I know this shocks some of you. There are some of those who hold different political views, as Jared was saying, in our church family. And I'm, th and I'm so thankful for that, right? I'm so thankful for that. We, are also, we also have different theological viewpoints here at Lacoma. We are living examples. We are living examples in a, in, as a church in action, a church striving for peace. But this is not easy to maintain. It's not. It's not easy to facilitate in any church. Therefore, therefore, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it's a verse we have grabbed onto as a congregation and said we are going to make this a core commitment of our body. And so let's quote this verse together. It's on the screen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Everybody get it, ready? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Say it one more time. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
Okay, so I want to go back to the story this morning that we covered a little bit last week, the story of the Good Samaritan. And I'd like to go deeper and do a deeper dive into this story, this famous story, and see if we may have missed some key elements here. So let's, let's begin in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And you've got your Bibles, open your Bibles up, because we're going to be, you're going to be needing your Bibles today, because some of the stuff that I'm going to ask you to turn to is not going to be on the screen. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says this, on one, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's hard for us to recognize. It's really hard for us to recognize. But there is much negativity in this verse toward the teacher. In the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, the phrase expert in the law is used six times. And always, it's always used in a negative undertones, with negative undertones. Many of our versions describe this individual as a lawyer, one versed in the law of God, one who has those intricate details of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament actually memorized. And they know exactly all this. So not once in Luke is a lawyer seen in a positive light. And sorry to my practicing attorneys here in the audience. Also the word test, the word test is the same word used when Satan comes to test Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. The lawyer, therefore, is taking on, he's actually taking on the role of Satan in this story. And again, not in a positive light. So, third, the 11 times the word teacher is used in Luke is also used negatively, condescending designation. By someone else. So how does Jesus answer the lawyer? How does Jesus answer this lawyer? He said that, that asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And like a good rabbi, like a good neighbor, I don't know why that came up right there, but like, a good, like a good rabbi, like a good rabbi, Jesus responds with this question. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you Read it. Now, this is a huge, huge, very important question that Jesus is asking this man. It's a hermeneutical question. In other words, it's a question about how one actually understands what is written. Look at the question again. Look at it again. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? So, write this down because this is very important. Every religious debate about the Bible isn't about what is written. It's about how one interprets what is written. And the many differences, the many differences within our fellowship and the many differences outside our fellowship are not about what is written. It's about how we interpret what it means, how we interpret the words on the pages of the Bible. And the teacher of the law responds to Jesus' question, to Jesus' question brilliantly. He responds correctly. He says this. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus looks at him and says, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. And the next words out of his mouth is, but 
And we all want to go, whoa, 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 stop right there. Don't, don't go any further. Don't go any further. Please, you, you got it right. Don't go any further. But the teacher of the law wants to justify himself. So he says, to justify himself, he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? In verses 20, 30 and 32, Jesus says, okay, let me give you, let me give you, let me give you this. Here we go. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And we kind of talked about this last week a little bit. But the Jewish, the Jewish people had many stories, many stories in their culture that went like this. There was, a, there was a Levite, and there was a priest. And it always ends up with the same conclusion. The same conclusion is, is that the Jew, the common citizen, was the hero. And so there's many, many stories in Jewish antiquities about there was a Levite, there was a priest, but it was the Jew, the common person, that was the one who comes to the rescue. They love stories like this. And they're thinking right now, we know where this story's going. We know exactly where this story's going. This story is going to make us the hero. But Jesus wants us to imagine differently. To imagine differently. And he says this, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And Jesus had to go there. Jesus had to go there. He had to put the Samaritan as a hero in the story. And I can tell you that the gasp in the audience probably would have been loud and they would have been felt like, are you kidding me? A Samaritan? A heathen? A betrayer of the foundations of our faith? Those who intermarried into other cultures and established their own religion? No way. No way. He can't be the hero. This is supposed to be someone else. One of us. One of the good guys. The Samaritans are lowlifes. They're filthy dirt. So, when it comes to our differences with people our likes and our dislikes, we often have boundaries, clear boundaries of who's in and who's out. Every single one of us do. All Democrats are in or out. All Republicans are in or out. All refugees are in or out. All Muslims are in or out. And the prejudices, the prejudices we hold for different categories of people are real in our lives. There are those people groups, those people groups for which we hold such disdain for. It's hard for us to see those people as people. We often see their differences. We often see their sins. We often classify these people for what they do and not who they are in God's image, in God's mind. And it's hard. It's hard for us because, because we are supposed to oppose evil. 
We're supposed to seek the good. We're supposed to surround ourselves with people who, who are good and not evil. And the Samaritan to them is evil. He's ungodly, he's unholy, he's repugnant, and he is disgusting in their eyes. And it is God who reminds us at creation, at creation, we are all made in the image of God. I don't know how many times I've said this over and over and over, but the Imago Dei, the image of God, the breath of God is inside every single human being. Every single human being. And it makes a difference on how we see other people if we can understand that that image of God is inside every single one of them. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the principle for us is this. We need to find the holy in humanity. I need to find the holy in humanity. And you may say, but James, 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 how do we love and accept people without watering down our values and convictions? Okay, Oklahoma City is one of four sites across our nation selected for StoryCorps, which is an NPR uh, radio program, to begin a program called One Small Step. Nine out of ten Americans, they said on their website, nine out of ten Americans say they are exhausted by the current culture of toxic polarization and are looking for a way out. One small step is an effort to remind the country of the humanity in all of us, even those with whom we disagree. And this is not even a Christian organization. One small step is currently working intensely in these four anchor communities, Oklahoma City being one of them, to bring strangers from different political views together to record a 50-minute conversation, not about politics, but about who we are as people. Here's the question. Would you sign up to be a part of it? Would you sign up to be a part of that? And I hear some of you say, yeah, I would, absolutely. I'd love to have a conversation with another person about who they are. I, I like getting with people and talking about their differences of opinion. While other, others of us would re recoil at the idea. I signed up. I actually signed up. I'm going to be matched with another. And in two weeks, I will record a session with someone I don't know. Someone that I know that is totally opposite of me. And I'm praying the conversation goes well. And I can't think of a better way to meet people who are different than I am than maybe in this form. Because here in Mustang, we're pretty one note, right? Just look around. We're pretty one note in Mustang. So back to our story, back to the Good Samaritan. How do we move toward those who are different? Those of different faiths, those of different ethnic backgrounds, those who hold different political views. Look at the suggestions that Jesus gives in this story. And the first one is this, empathy, put empathy into action. Put empathy into action. All right, let me read this again. And here's what I want you to note as we go through. I want you to note the highlighted words in here. 
I need you to just, just please note the highlighted words in here. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And here's the principle I want you to write down. This parable is not about identifying who is the neighbor. This parable is about whether we are a neighbor, whether we are the neighbor. How well do we empathize with those who are different than us, those who have needs, those who need help, those who come from a different background? We are great. Listen, we are great at sympathizing with people. But empathy is a different, different. Empathy is putting your putting everything into action, taking action with those who may have differences with you, our enemies. And I believe, I believe it is possible. Because Jesus says it's possible. I believe it is possible to actually love our enemies. Why? Why? Because Jesus said so. And because this story has occurred before. This story has occurred before. Now, we're going to play a game. We're going to play a game. So, here we go. This is a game. And here's the game. What we're going to do. Where have we heard this before? Where have we heard this before? Remember, one of my challenges, one of my challenges is when you're reading the text, when you're reading about Jesus' parables, when you're reading about a story that he says, one of the things I want you to do is always think, where is this? Where have I seen this before? Where is it in the text, in the Old Testament? And so that's what I'm trying to draw you to is where is it before? Does anyone know where the companion passion is, companion, companion passage is for the Good Samaritan? Anybody got an idea? Okay, everybody turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, if you don't mind. All right. Not all of this is going to be on the screen, so you really need your Bible for this, all right? We're going to start in verse 1, but verses 2 through 4 are going to be on the screen. So here we go. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king And he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before him, before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense in the high places on the hilltops and every spreading tree. Okay, so 
Let me, let me give you a chart up here, if you can put that chart up there, if you don't mind. Okay, I've got this chart. This is, a, this is a quarter section of this chart. This is a chart of all the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. What you're looking at is the yellow line is the kings of Israel. These are the ones, these are the ten tribes that said, Jeroboam said, we're not going to follow you, Rehoboam, who is the king of Judah at that time when Solomon passed away. And all those ten tribes go off and they start their own country and they start their own type of worship and they actually build golden calves right after they become a nation. And so that's the yellow line. That's your, that's your Israelite kingdom. On the green line is your Judah kingdom, the two tribes that were left, the king of David. Okay, so Ahaz is on the bottom line. You can look at 720, and you just go right down there, and you're going to notice that the king of Israel is Pekeh, and then the king of Judah is Ahaz, all right? Very, very important to understand that. And so, you got, you got where this is, all right? You kind of understand. And what does it say right there in verse 2 and, and 3 and 4? It says that he, he actually, the king of Israel, goes after the bells. And he is doing exactly what the children of Israel were doing. I mean, I mean the Israelites were doing. This, 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 the Samaritan is where it is now. And remember what happens. Remember, go back to the slide if you don't mind. Remember what happens in, in, at the end of this. You can see Assyrian captivity. Israel, the kingdom of Israel, is taken off and carted off, and they're gone. And they leave a lot of people over in their land, and Samaria is formed. And all the Israelites that are left there intermarry with everybody else. And so, there's this disdain from the Jewish people. All right, now I'm going to read starting in verse 9. Don't put, it, don't put the slide up, verse 15, until I ask you to. 15 is the only one I'm going to have. We're going to begin in verse 9. Listen to this. The prophet of the Lord named Obed was there. He went out to meet the army when he returned to Samaria. And he said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. This is the prophet Obed. He's not even on here. He was so small. Hosea is there. But here's Obed, a prophet. And God has sent him out and said, I need you to say this. I need you to tell them this, but you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches up to heaven, and now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves. But aren't you also guilty of the sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow Israelites. You, you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Then some of the leaders of Ephraim, and I'm going to drop down, confronted those who were arriving from the war. Verse 13, you must not bring these prisoners here, they said, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and guilt? For our guilt is already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plundered the presence of the plunder and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. Now remember, now remember, how many people were actually killed? How many people were actually killed in this fight? Israel comes and they, I mean, Israel comes and they fight against Judah. They kill a hundred and twenty thousand soldiers, 120,000 soldiers. 
It's a massacre. And then they take 200,000 people back to Syria. This is a massacre. I mean, this is ungodly to what they did to them. And Obed is saying, don't do this. Don't do this. And so they said, okay. And then in verse 15 on the screen, here's what it says. Remember the words that we've already seen. The men designated by name took the prisoners, and from the plunder they clothed all who were naked. They provided them clothes and sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, the city of the palms, and returned to Samaria. And the people who were listening, who knew their text, are going, no way. No way. This is about, he's retelling the story of what went on here. About the Samaritans that sent back the 200,000, that not only sent them back, but put healing balm on them. And not only that, the Samaritans, they actually, they actually put the weak ones on donkeys and send them back to Jericho and then come back to Samaria. It is a retelling of this story. Hated adversaries. Hated adversaries. Loving their enemies. And my question is, is can we do that? Can we love our enemies? They showed compassion, they clothed them, they provided healing bomb, they put, put them on donkeys, returned them to Jericho, returning to Samaria. Is this not how we should approach our enemies? By loving them. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Love your what? Your enemies. Love your enemies. In Luke 10, verse 36, Jesus asked a question to the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Who are our neighbors? Who are our neighbors? Isn't it anybody that I come face to face with every single day? Those are who are our neighborhoods. In our neighborhood last year, in our neighborhood last year on the 4th of July, on the 5th of July that morning, on the 5th of July, I'm getting up and I'm, I'm about to, I'm getting out and I'm in the garage with the garage door closed and I'm hearing yelling and screaming. And so I open the door. As I open the door, I go out into the middle and I just kind of, I, th- I, think, I think it's just right around the corner. I just think it's right there. And I'm like hesitant to even look around the corner. But as I'm looking around the corner, I see that it's four houses down in the cul-de-sac right way over there. And there's these two men going at it. I mean, they are, they are fiercely going at it. I mean, I thought it was going to come to blows. I thought there was going to be, there, we're going to have to call the police out. And one neighbor was so mad because he doesn't like fireworks. And he didn't like the mess that was all on his lawn. He put up his 
house for sale that week. And he moved. And he moved. And many times that's the way we deal with adversity. It's how we deal with adversity. I'm told, I'm told that the neighbors that took the house love fireworks. So we're okay this year, I hope. I hope we are. Because it's coming up soon. Was there a better way of them handling their differences? Sure. Sure there was. But that's our culture today, isn't it? That's how our culture operates. We get mad, and then we just leave. That's not how it should be as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And yes, we can talk about this, but I'm talking about the world and how we engage with them, whether it's social media or whatever it is, we engage. We engage. And as believers, those who have pledged with a good conscience to respond differently than the world, to turn the other cheek, to think of others before we think of ourselves, to love our neighbor. The expert in the law says this. He says, I know the one who is the neighbor. It's the one who had mercy. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, can we? Can we do the same? Can we do the same? Should we? Will we? In Luke 19, verse 18, where Jesus pulls this, it says, And you shall love your neighbor who, uh, do not, do not, first of all, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Now that phrase could be said like this, And you shall love your neighbor who is like yourself. You should love your neighbor who is like yourself. So my closing principle that you can write down, Highlight the thing one has in common and give grace to the areas of differences. Highlight the things we have in common, but give grace to the area of differences. All right, as we close this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like everybody to stand if you would. So please stand. And I want us to repeat one more time this verse. So let's say it together. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. May God bless you. May His face shine upon you. And may His peace always be in our hearts. Let's sing.